So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And we are in verses 14 through 17 this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at this great passage. Verses 14 through 17 of Colossians 3. So far we've seen, if you remember in Colossians chapter 3, that Christ-centered living begins with rejecting or abandoning worldly thought and worldly philosophy, empty philosophy, and arming ourselves with the right mindset in verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3. And this mindset really consists of focusing upon our Lord Jesus Christ if we're believers, upon Christ's kingdom priorities, upon His own principles in the light of our great salvation, our time and our efforts on this earth and our resources are to, all to be directed at focusing upon Jesus Christ and being about building His kingdom here on this earth. And this Christ-centered uh, focus or mindset then propels us on the one hand, on the negative side we've seen in verses 5 through 11, to aggressively slay and discard as an old filthy clothing our former sins. We who are believers have been given new life. We're new creatures. We have had God break the dominating power of sin and its influence over our lives so that we no longer need to be enslaved to our sin. So on the negative side, we are aggressively slain and discarding the former sins that were a part of us before Christ. On the positive side, in verses 12 through 17, we've seen that this Christ-focused mindset also should motivate us to a relentless pursuit of holiness by, by clothing ourselves with Christ-like attire, if you will. Those, those virtues, those Christ-like graces that match our identity in Christ Jesus. They are Christ-like, aren't they? These graces that we've looked at. For all of these virtues really are personified in our Lord Jesus Christ, are they not? Our beautiful Lord Jesus. They are graces that are to be true of us in light of the fact that we have had God's grace shown to us. In other words, we display these graces, beloved, these virtues, these Christ-like virtues, because we have received grace. Amen? We are recipients of the grace of God. We did not deserve this grace. We did not earn this grace. Grace, by definition, is God's undeserved and unearned blessing and favor toward us who deserved only hell and judgment for our sins. Yet we are the recipients in Christ Jesus of God's immeasurable blessings in Christ. Isn't it fitting then in response to, to God's grace shown to us. Isn't it fitting and reasonable and, and logical, spiritually speaking, that, that the church, the people of God, should be known as a gracious people, as a gracious community, as a people who, who lovingly confronts sin and also models gracious forgiveness and biblical restoration and reconciliation of relationships? Isn't it fitting, beloved, in, in response to God's grace lavished upon us? Isn't it reasonable that the church, the people of God, should be known as a, as a gracious community that cultivates a, a gracious culture or environment where we seek to live together exuding the graciousness of God shown to us in Christ Jesus in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we treat one another? See, God's beautiful design for His church is that we would be a people who would live together as a gracious fellowship of believers. 
as an expression of God's grace shown to us. And this is why, beloved, I'm so excited as we look at verses 14 through 17 here of chapter 3 of Colossians, um, because this is where we, we find this main point made. This, that where holiness is cultivated, there exists a gracious culture. Where holiness is growing and is being cultivated, there exists a growing, gracious culture. See, we often separate those, right? Holiness and and graciousness. But here in this context, they both appear at the same time. We are being told to put aside sin and pursue uh, these Christ-like virtues, to pursue holiness or Christ-likeness. And yet we're seeing over and over again that we are part of one body and are to be treating one another with graciousness and love and patience and forgiveness and being forbearant with one another. Graciousness and holiness appear in the same context. And so the question that I want to answer for us this morning is this. What does living together as a gracious community look like? What does living together as a gracious community look like? Well, let me put it a different way. What are the characteristics of a gracious culture? What are the characteristics of a gracious culture? And I find four of those characteristics here in verses 14 through 17. Four characteristics of of what comprises a gracious culture, a gracious atmosphere that is committed to holiness, but also strives to grow in graciousness in our dealings with one another. And the first characteristic of a gracious culture is that a gracious culture is a love-expressing culture in verse 14. A love-expressing culture. Look at verse 14 and what he says there. Beyond all of these things, put on love. And the put on is an insertion there from verse 12. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Mark it. A gracious culture is a culture where the people exude the love of Christ toward one another. And essentially we become Christ to others in the way that we love others in the body of Christ. This love for one another we know, flows first and foremost from a personal understanding of God's love for us, right? The more that we understand the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, the more we will be a people who are love-expressing toward others. You remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 and verse 13, where He said this, Greater love has no man than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus did this, didn't He? In His humanity, He laid down His life for people. All of His time, all of His efforts, everything was directed at loving people with the truth and loving people with compassion and loving people with kindness. Jesus modeled for us this self-sacrificial love, not only in His humanity, but also in in His death on the cross, right? For in our place, for our sins. That by repentance and faith, you and I, beloved, have been granted forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. We love because Jesus has loved us first, right? And Jesus said, by this, then, will all men know that you are my disciples if you have what? Say it with me. Love for one another. Love for one another. 
So in response to Christ's love for us, we become instruments of Christ's love toward other people as well. Look at verse 14. Beyond all of these things, literally to all of these or on top of all of the others, by which he means the virtues of verses 12 and 13, he says, on top of all of those virtues, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Paul has told us that as Christians, there is Christ-like attire that we must put on. Look at verse 12. We must put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That is Christ-like attire. And now he tells us that there's one final piece of clothing that goes on top of all of those right there. And that is love. Love is the final layer of clothing, if you will. As if to say, without love, the others are incomplete. Love perfects all of the other virtues, if you will. Love is the virtue that allows the other virtues to reach their full potential. In fact... Isn't that what Paul means regarding the prominence of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Listen to what he says there in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Have you ever heard a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, by the way? Not very pleasant. If I give the gift of prophecy, or if I have the gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And then in verse 13 he says, But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love. Love is prominent. Love perfects all of the other virtues, if you will. And notice, love is is unifying, isn't it? He says in verse 14, it is the perfect bond of unity. Literally, the uniting bond of perfection. Beautiful word there, the word bond. It refers to that which holds something together. It's got the picture of of a sash or a girdle that physically binds all of the virtues together. Somebody has put it this way. Love is the glue that holds the body of Christ together as one. It's the unifying glue, if you will. In one sense, you can say that all of, that he, all of virtues in verses 12 and 13 can be summarized in this. Love one another. Love one another. In Galatians 5.14, that's how Paul says that, the, that, that love is the fulfillment of the law. That all of the the rules and regulations pertaining to their neighbors can be summed up in this great reality. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is prominent. Love is prominent. Beloved, where holiness is cultivated, love is expressed and is growing. And I want to ask you this question this morning, very personally. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? I'm not talking about, do you love the building? I'm not talking about, do you love the the great programs that are here for you and your family? I'm not talking about, do you appreciate and love the services that you receive? 
I'm not talking about the, the security or the comfort that you have of a place to go or a place to be a part of if you love that. I'm not even talking about, uh, do you love the great history of Calvary Bible Church and the glory days that you can point back to as, a, as an individual? I'm not talking about, do you love that? I'm talking about, do you love the church? Do you love the people of God? Do you love the people in this auditorium? Do you love the people of God? Christ loved His church, did He not? He loved His church so much that He gave His life for her. He gave His life for His church. He loves the church, His people so much that He married His church. Isn't that the picture in Revelation? The marriage of the, of the church to Christ will be culminated as a reminder forevermore that Jesus loves those whom He came to purchase with His own blood. The marriage of the Lamb to the bride of Christ. The church, if Jesus loves His church that much, beloved, those of us who are genuine followers of Christ should love that which is precious to Jesus. We should love His people. And that love will become very tangible in your life. It's not just an emotion. It is driven by affection and emotion for people and those feelings that are genuine from the heart. But it's, it, it drives us then to our actions and our commitment for one another. To be investing your life into somebody else for their personal benefit and not just for what you can get out of it. It will show in the way that we help others grow and we're committed to coming alongside of one another. It would show in the way that we use our time and that we invest our time into people, brothers and sisters in Christ who need us, to whom we can be instruments in the hands of the Redeemer for them to become more and more like Jesus. That love expressed will show itself, beloved, in, in the way that we, that we use our resources for the building up of this body and to continue to advance the, the kingdom of God here on this earth. And can I add this? That love will show itself in your practice of holiness according to this passage. If you remember the sexual sins of verse 5, those are not sexual sins that we should be practicing if we truly love our brethren. The sins of the tongue of verses 8 and 9 are not sins that we're going to be practicing if we truly love our brethren. Those are contra the love of Christ for people, right? To be about sexual immorality to be about gossiping and slandering and being driven by a heart of anger and bitterness and resentment, those things are the opposite of love for your brethren. If we love God's people, beloved, it will show itself in the way that we live. Amen? It will show itself in the way that we live. So a gracious culture is a love-expressing culture. Secondly, it's a peace-ruling culture. It's a peace-ruling culture. Look at verse 15. Right out of the text. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. A gracious culture is a culture where the, the peace of Christ so reigns abundantly in your heart that you can't help but pursue peace with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You will be driven by gospel peace to be a peacemaker, beloved. It's motivated by God's love for us and what He has done to achieve peace with sinners such as us. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's a present tense command 
to continually let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. It's an interesting verb here, which means to, to judge or umpire as in athletic games. You know a judge or umpire, what they do, right? They, they, they render a verdict or a definitive and final decision, right? Well, for the most part, unless you're the Dodgers and then you're arguing your, the call. What Paul is essentially saying here in verse 15 is, is when conflict strikes, we are to decide definitively for peace. We are to let peace rule. A good translation, in fact, is let peace be the decisive factor. Let peace be the deciding factor. That when conflict is present, we are to decide for peace as members of the body of Christ. Christ is the great peacemaker, isn't He? The great peacemaker who came to to bring peace between us and God by faith. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that before there could be peace with God, there had to be payment for our sins, right? Our peace with God came at at a high price, beloved. God sacrificed His Son on the cross in our place for our sins, pouring His wrath upon Him and punishing Him for us, that by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. That's how our peace was accomplished. It came at a high price. We are at peace with God by faith in Christ. The debt has been removed The pardon has been extended to us as sinners by faith in Jesus. And in turn, beloved, having experienced the peace of God in our hearts by faith in Jesus Christ and what that means to be reconciled to God, we ought to be people who are peacemakers with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to be peacemakers. So I want to ask you, when conflict strikes, when conflict arises, are you a peacemaker? Are you a peacemaker? Or do you run the opposite direction in conflict? Do you avoid that person? Or do you, do you pretend that, that that particular person doesn't exist anymore? Or do you simply defend yourself and your cause and your point of view? That would not be a peacemaker being driven by the gospel, being empowered by the Spirit of God. Peacemakers are conscientious of the glory of God that's at stake in relationships with their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Peacemakers are personally examining themselves and their own sin before the Lord first and foremost. And peacemakers then confront a situation with humility and gentleness with the ultimate goal of restoration and reconciliation. Why? Because we've experienced that from our Heavenly Father, have we not? By faith in Jesus Christ. And at times, peacemaking, beloved, in accordance with Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11, might be that you may have to just simply overlook an offense. It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Sometimes that is the way to peace. Simply to allow the love of Christ to cover that particular offense. At all costs, we should be peacemakers, beloved. And listen, we should seek genuine peace, not worldly truce. Not worldly truce. You know what truce is, right? A temporary seizing of, of fire as in a fire as in a battle. 
Over the course of history, nations have gone against nations and there have been at different times a truce, a temporary seizing of fire. But you know that as soon as they get the opportunity, once again, they're going to go duke it out again until somebody wins, right? Truce. Sometimes we do that in the church, beloved. We declare truce and we, are, we harbor resentment and bitterness and we don't deal with our own hearts. And next time that the person's name comes up or there's this, uh, an opportunity to potentially confront the situation, there is this re- bitterness and resentment that overflows onto that relationship. Truce, not genuine peace. Peace is genuine from the heart. Peace is spirit-empowered. It's, it's gospel-driven, beloved, because we love and want the glory of God, and we know the glory of God is at stake, and we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're willing to pursue that peace with them. It's gospel-driven. We have a, a beautiful privilege, think about it, to make visible the gospel of reconciliation, right? We are, we are to be those who, we are those who have the ministry of reconciliation, both in evangelism in that we're calling sinners to bow the knee to Christ and follow after Him and turn from their sins, put their faith in Jesus, but also edificationally in the sense that we are pursuing one another and pursuing peace with one another and, and modeling before, before a watching world what gospel reconciliation looks like so that we bring glory to God in the process, Right? Peace, peace is a commitment for every true believer, beloved, for every true believer. And I love what he says here in verse 15 to highlight that the corporate nature of the peace that we have to not only that we not only have with God, but with one another. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, to which indeed you were called in one body. In other words, this peace has implications for the rest of the body. For the rest of the body, we are members of one another. Thus, we are to be peacemakers. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 9? Blessed. Blessed. Happy. I like that word. Happy or blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. You want to be a happy believer? You want to be a blessed believer as it pertains to your relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Be committed to peaceful relationships, beloved. Model those after God's peace for you in Christ Jesus or with you in Christ Jesus. Be a peacemaker. One of the characteristics that you are a child of God is that you strive for peace, though you may struggle with that and struggle with your own heart. You're going to strive for peace. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible... So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We are called to do everything possible within our means to be at peace with all men, especially our fellow brethren, beloved. And we know where ultimately this peace comes from, right? It comes from the Lord. John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The great peacemaker, Jesus Christ, has given us his peace, right? And in turn, you and I are called to the hard but beautiful task of peacemaking, beloved. We are called to be different than the world, are we not? Not to adopt the world's thinking as it pertains to relationships. Get your piece of flesh in. Avoid them. Get even. Declare truce and move on. Pretend that they don't exist anymore. No, God's word says you pursue gospel-driven, spirit-empowered peace, which is what God did for you in Christ Jesus. 
That's how we're called to live. And then look at verse 15. It's beautiful. This peacemaking is not to be done reluctantly. It's not to be done begrudgingly, but must be done with an attitude of gratitude to God. Look at verse 15. And be thankful, he says. Present tense command. It's not optional. Continually be thankful. Be known characteristically as a pattern of your life as a believer for being one full of gratitude. The believer is to be characterized by an attitude of gratitude as it relates to to peace here. At first... Um, The command to be thankful seems at first glance to kind of be out of place, doesn't it? But that's actually very fitting that it's here. Because of this, only believers who are full of gratitude to God for their salvation can be peacemakers. Think about it. When you are not full of gratitude to God, but you're discontent, you're grumbling, you're easily irritable, You're always talking about how God has given you the short end of the stick. You're very complaining about your circumstances and difficult people around you. And that's all you ever do. And there's no gratitude. It's going to be very, very difficult for you to be at peace with other people. There's no gratitude or thanksgiving there. But when you're full of thanksgiving, beloved, you're content. You know that God is in control. You won't be about fighting for your rights. You won't be about communicating your opinion and making sure that you get your point across. You're going to be a person who is going to preserve peace from a heart full of gratitude. So a gracious culture, notice, is a love-expressing, peace-ruling culture. Thirdly, in verse 16, it's a word-saturated culture. A word-saturated culture. Notice what he says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, he says. How might a church cultivate a loving and peaceful culture? The answer is by striving to be a word-saturated church, beloved. A word-saturated church. Notice what he says in verse 16, to to let it dwell. Let the word of Christ richly dwell. It means to, to to allow it to take permanent residence in your heart. That the word of Christ would, would be comfortable there in your heart. Not just passing through. Not just spending the night, if you will. But that it takes permanent residence in your heart. You know, no matter how much I traveled over the years and the hotels that we stayed at and we stayed at other times with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who made their home as hospitable and as comfortable as possible, I never found those places to be home. Home is comfortable. Home is where you let your hair down, right? Home is where your family is. None of those places were ever home. That's the idea here. Don't just, allow it, the, the, don't, don't just allow the word of Christ to be just passing through, but to take permanent residence, to be, to be comfortable. He, he adds, in fact, this word, richly, does he not? Richly, abundant, lavishly. The word of Christ is to abundantly, lavishly make its home in our hearts. Listen, it's to be the dominating influence in your heart and life. How does that happen? It doesn't happen, beloved, I'll tell you this, just by reading the daily bread every day. Nothing against the daily bread if you do that, okay? My point is, you should be going above and beyond that. Reading the Word, right? Reflecting upon the Word. Memorizing the Word. Meditating upon the Word of Christ. 
prayerfully applying the word of Christ to your life so that everything you think about, everything you do is saturated with a deep reflection and contemplation of the message of Christ, His majesty, His person, His work. Everything that He's done. His preeminence, His supremacy. As we've seen here in the book of Colossians, go back and, and relish and meditate upon Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The mountain peak, if you will, of the, the infinite supremacy and majesty of Jesus. Some believe there was a song in New Testament times, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, for singing and meditation. Why? So that, so that you would be saturated with the message of Christ and the person of Christ in your life. But it takes effort, does it not? It takes effort, beloved. Now what happens when we are word-saturated? When we, are, we allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, what does this result in? I want you to see this by way of three participles in verse 16. What does word saturation result in? And Paul gives us three participles here in verse 16. Notice, he says, teaching and admonishing, which kind of go hand in hand. And then he says, singing. Teaching and admonishing and singing. Three different participles in verse 16 that tell us what word saturation results in. First of all, it will result in truth speaking types of relationships, will they not? Teaching, he says, and admonishing. We will be those who are committed to positively bringing the truth of God to bear upon one another's lives. Teaching normally is, refers to the official teaching of doctrine in the church. But here it's broadened to include what every single member, what each of you should be doing for one another to one extent or another. Every believer, beloved, has an informal word-speaking ministry. You do. Isn't that what Paul meant in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, when he calls us to speak the truth in love to one another that we may grow up into Christ-likeness? We all have that responsibility. Not only positive teaching, but also negative admonishing. Admonishing. Every member should be committed to warning, to admonishing, to instructing one another in wise behavior. Each of us have that. See, when, the, when there's a word-saturated environment, we are committed to these truth-speaking relationships, and we do it in all wisdom. Notice verse 16. Teaching and admonishing in all wisdom. Which requires, as we saw back in Colossians 1.28, that if you are going to be uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, it requires both a knowledge of God's Word and a knowledge of people, does it not? You could be a person who has a lot of Bible knowledge, but not know people or love people or pursue relationships with people. On the other hand, you can also be very much a people person and pursue people and not have anything to impart to them because you're not a student of the Word of God. You don't study the Word of God. You don't have it saturated. Your heart is not saturated in the Holy Scriptures. So what do you have to, in your well, so to speak, to entrust to somebody else? If we're going to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, it requires both Bible knowledge and a love for people and relationships with people, does it not? Both are important, beloved. Not only does word saturation manifest itself in truth-speaking relationships, but notice in verse 16, it also manifests itself in worship and, and praise singing. Praise singing. He says, he says, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
When you have an environment and a culture that is word-saturated, it will manifest itself in us pursuing one another, speaking the truth to one another in love, as well as pretty happy people who are singing people. Think about that. Think about the implications here of what he says with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God for our corporate worship services, beloved. See, oftentimes we come in with so much baggage on Sunday mornings and we forget about the the amazing, profound privilege of gathering as a corporate body of believers. And you know what's happening on Sunday mornings? Not only are you directing your praises to God first and foremost, genuinely from your heart, but you know what else you're doing? You are testifying and edifying one another as you sing corporately. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Through the content of those words, we're speaking truth and are singing to our fellow brothers and sisters, literally singing next to us or in front of us or behind us. I recall a brother back at a former church who, whenever we would sing, as I got to know him more and more, would sit literally in the front of the church sanctuary. And this guy would just pour his heart out and singing all the time. And he raised up his hands and he's singing with a smile on his face. I never saw him not smile when he was singing. But this guy, um, the first, as I got to know him more, I, I realized pretty quickly that you know, I would close my eyes when I, when I was singing as well. But I noticed after a while that he would always look over to me as he's singing and smiling and he starts singing in my ear, my left ear or my right ear, depending on what side he was. And after a while of this, I'm thinking, what in the world's up with this rascal, you know? So we were on our way to this camp one time and I said, hey, hey, bro. Can you explain to me what in the world's up with you always singing in my ear? And he said, I'm glad you asked. Brother, Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, for this brother, he understood, beloved, the principle of the fact that he was not just singing to God from a heart of just uh, overflowing with gratitude to his great God and his great salvation, but he wanted to edify and build me up as well. Now, I'm not suggesting that for our closing song today, (laughs) I'm not suggesting that for our closing song, you guys all start singing and yelling in one another's ear unless you want to. Okay, in this case, with this guy, he had a great voice. Okay, so I didn't mind it so much, right? But it's the principle of the matter, right? How often do we realize that we also edify and build one another up, that as we sing from genuine, uh, um, sincere hearts of praise to our great Heavenly Father, we are also edifying and building up our brothers and sisters in Christ. I got to tell you, Ian and Julie sat with me for the first time, I mean, sat behind me for the first time ever that I can remember in second service. And I was so edified hearing those two singing. It was edifying. Of course, I was seeking to apply this text too, right? But it made all the sins in the world. They're singing, beautiful voices, content that is rich and profound. And I'm being edified and built up, beloved. Listen, the next time that you sing, remember that. That it is first and foremost unto our great God, genuinely and sincere, from, from hearts that are genuine and sincere, grateful unto Him for what He's done for us. But also you are building up your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't this beautiful? Beautiful. Now all three nouns here in verse 16, psalms, hymns, and uh, songs, appear in Ephesians 5.19. And I'm not going to take uh, the time to, uh, to unpack them extensively for you here, but I will say this about each of them. Psalms 
most likely refers to the book of the Old Testament Psalms in our Bibles, with a special emphasis on the accompanying musical instruments. Hymns refer to songs composed in praise of God. In fact, we have potentially two examples of such hymns in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 was potentially a hymn sung by the early church of praises to God, right? And then also Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 was also potentially a hymn of the early church composed in praise of God. Songs is the general word for songs in the Greek language. And here he adds, the, he modifies it with the word spiritual, spiritual songs, because spiritual songs also appears in Ephesians 5. And I take these to, to be spiritual songs offered in praise under the control and influence of the Holy Spirit. That's how I take spiritual songs to be here. In Revelation 5.9, it says that there's a new song that they're singing. And that refers to songs that, that bear testimony to what God has, has done, to the greatness of God, to our experience with a, a God who has, had, who has unfolded a tremendous plan in creation and salvation. And we sing to Him. We do that as a church, do we not? Rich content that extols our great God for what He has done in both creation and salvation. One pastor commenting on the relationship of the three nouns... Psalms, hymns, and songs says this. Together, these three terms indicate a variety and richness of Christian singing which should not be stereotyped into a mold. I like that. I like that. Each of us has a word-speaking ministry, beloved. And one of the ways that we do this is when we come together to sing praises, we ought to sing praises to our great God and remember that we are also edifying our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? And notice in verse 16, again, notice we sing praises with the right attitude yet again. He says in verse 16, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He is the object of our praises, right? Notice three things. Our singing is directed to God. It is to be sincere in our hearts, genuine, authentic. And it is to be done with the right attitude, with thanksgiving. Literally in the grace singing. Expressing graciousness in the songs that we sing as an expression of our gratitude for God's grace in our lives. Listen, if the peace of Christ, beloved, is to rule in our relationships, according to verse 15, then the word of Christ must dwell in our midst. And I want to say this. For this word saturation to happen, Christ's word, beloved, listen to me, must be the dominating influence amongst us. Each of us have personal opinions about how things should be. Each of us have personal agendas that we want to see unfolded. Each of us have personal feelings. All of those things are subordinate to the Word of Christ. All of them are. Christ is head over His church, isn't He? Christ guides and directs His church through His Word. We submit to Christ when we submit to the Word of God. The fact that verse 16 commands us To let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us implies that Christians often don't allow the Word of Christ to dominate them, to be the dominant influence amongst them. This is ultimately why, beloved, if I can say this, why ultimately problems happen in churches. 
Because in some way, shape, or form, in some form or another, the Word of Christ ceases to permeate and saturate individuals and the corporate body and us submitting to the Word of Christ. As we submit to the Word of Christ, then the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts and in our relationships, and we will be characterized as a love-expressing church. So notice, a gracious culture is a love-expressing peace-ruling, word-saturated culture. And fourthly, it's a Christ-exalting culture. A Christ-exalting culture where Christ is our greatest preoccupation. He is the main topic of our conversation. Accomplishing and fulfilling His mission on this earth is what we're here to do. Verse 17 really summarizes all of verses 12 through 16. Our relentless pursuit of holiness and of Christ-like graces should be governed by this exhortation in verse 17. Here it is. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. I love that word, whatever, in verse 17. Not whatever with an attitude, right? But whatever, he says, whatever, anything not on this list. It is all inclusive. In fact, the word whatever translates four Greek words in the Greek text. Whatever, anything that is not on this list, it's all inclusive. It's all encompassing here. All of our words, all of our deeds, whatever I've missed, Paul says, everything should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does he mean? That everything we say and do must be consistent with who Christ is. Everything must be done and said should be done for Him, for His exaltation, to represent Him on this earth. We represent, beloved, the risen, ascended, exalted Christ on this earth. Do we live that way? In word and in deed. Paul is saying, in everything, Christ must have first place in everything. Isn't that what Colossians has been all about? It's all about Christ. We are complete in Christ. He's our sufficiency. He is supreme. He is preeminent. We are here. God the Father is glorified in the exaltation of His Son in the power of the Holy Spirit at this stage of redemptive history. Did you hear that? God the Father is glorified in the exaltation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came to exalt the Son, to lift up the Son in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners. Look at the book of Acts. It's all about exalting Christ to the glory of the Father. Amen? That's why we're here, beloved. So whatever we do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Because according to chapter 1, isn't it God the Father who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred the believer to the kingdom of the Son of His love? He deserves glory, our deepest gratitude and thanksgiving for saving us in His beloved Son. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is all over the place, isn't it? In this text. I want you to notice this. It's a major theme. Major theme. Look back in chapter 1. Verse 3, right off the bat, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. He's thankful. Paul is thankful for the work of God the Father in and through the Lord Jesus Christ because of their salvation. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. He says that in verse 10 that He wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects. And also, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
Look at chapter 2 and verse 7 or verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing, abounding with gratitude, with graciousness that is expressed. Gratitude. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. I know we already read it, but let's read it again. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Present tense command, not an option. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of, of thanksgiving. Mark it, beloved. A Christ-centered, Christ-exalting church is a joyful, thankful church. A joyful, thankful church. In contrast to being characterized by the destructive sins of the tongue of verse 8, uh, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth and lying and dece- deceiving one another, in contrast to that, directly in contrast to that, we should be a praise-giving, thankful people. That's a Christ-exalting church that is full of thanksgiving. Full of thanksgiving. Writing about the importance of gratitude expressed to God. Listen to what one pastor has said. The well of God's unceasing grace must constantly be bubbling up within the Christian, manifesting itself vertically in gratitude to God. Apart from this ever-present, always-glowing supply of God's grace, In our resultant gratitude, we will soon run dry of grace to extend to the next person, and our relationships will no longer be marked by the touch of God. Let me read that again. The well of God's unceasing grace must constantly be bubbling up within the Christian, manifesting itself vertically in gratitude to God. For apart from this ever-present, always-glowing supply of God's grace and our resultant gratitude, we will soon run dry of grace to extend to the next person, and our relationships will no longer be marked by the touch of God. Where holiness is cultivated, beloved, there exists a growing, gracious, thankful culture where we strive to live together as a love-expressing, peace-ruling, word-saturated, Christ-exalting community, where it's all about exalting Christ, where our efforts are aimed at at, at fulfilling Jesus' kingdom priorities, where exalting Christ and the the ramifications and implications of that are, are the topic of every single conversation that we have. How we use our resources aimed at that highest of calls and purposes. And that is our greatest preoccupation in any calling that we have in this life. To exalt our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to, beloved. That's what we're called to. Where holiness is cultivated, there exists a growing, gracious, thankful culture. May God help us, amen, to be people in response to His grace shown toward us. To be gracious toward one another. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, 
if you have taught us something, and if your grace has taught us something, it is this, that we are great sinners and you are a great, great, gracious God. Help us, Lord. In turn, as we understand your grace shown to us, to be people who, in response to that grace shown to us, are gracious to one another, beginning with those of the household of the faith, as well as to the unbelieving world, sharing the gospel of grace with them, that they may be confronted with their sin and their need to be reconciled to you by faith in Jesus. Help us to be a gracious people and a gracious church. We ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.